Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We are going to continue in our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And we've been calling this series the Action of the Church. And so with that, if you brought your Bibles, open it to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be verses 1 through 7 this morning. And I'm calling this sermon Incomplete Faith. So we have come to the 19th chapter in the book of Acts this morning. And in, in this chapter, we're going to meet some men. And these men are, are just regular old men, but they are following a man. And when I say this, I want to be very crystal clear about this, that these men are followers of another human man. And if we're being honest, okay, this is really, really easy to do. Okay? It's very easy to do, and it's also very dangerous to do, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. Okay? And I say this because if someone's going to blindly follow a man, that's dangerous because that individual is, is just a man. And he's a flawed human man, just like the rest of us. And so if you choose to do that, you're going to end up in places you never intended to go. And so if we take this principle and apply it to our spiritual lives, okay, it, 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 we, we all want to admire and, and, and have a level of trust and faith in, in a person as we are pursuing this Christian life, okay? But we need to understand that the, the level of faith and the amount of faith that when we, we trust by and live by is really second to the object of our faith. That the object of our faith must be correct, or else we're going to pursue wrong things and head in the wrong direction. And so with that, set up for what we're going to read here in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse number 1. It says, As and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So last Sunday, we were introduced to a very interesting individual by the name of Apollos, okay? And, and so he's showing up again here on the scenes in Acts chapter 19. Remember, Luke is writing this, but, but he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit at this moment, the book of Acts, and really the entire book. But a lot of what is central to the book of Acts, at least in this part and moving forward, is about what the Apostle Paul is doing. And I think God wants us to know something about Apollos right here and right now. And so that's why the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to include this little caveat about Apollos here. And I have to wonder if this isn't a lot to have to do with the Apostle Paul. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. If we were to hit rewind on the book of Acts and, and go back a little while, just a few pages and look at the Macedonian call, this is where Paul wanted to go to Asia. Paul wanted to go to Asia. He wanted to preach the gospel to some people who had never heard the gospel before. And the Holy Spirit prevented him and made him go west and going east. Well, that was two years ago. Okay? Two years have passed since, since that has happened. And, and now Paul is finally able to go and share the gospel to that place where he's been wanting to go for so long. Any parents in the room? Parents? Yeah, yeah. Do your kids ask for stuff, like excessively, just constantly asking and asking, can I get an amen? Yeah. And they like won't quit. Well, my wife and I have a tactic that we use when our kids do this. And our kids ask for something and we'll say, oh, we'll have to put that on the list. 
And what our kids interpret that as meaning is that somewhere, somehow there's this this giant list of the hundreds, if not thousands of things that they've asked for over the years and all the different things they've wanted. And what that statement really means, what my wife and I are meaning when we say that is, well, we're going to tuck this way back into the recesses of our memories. And if God is going to, uh, if this is going to come to fruition, it's going to be a miracle of God. And it was a great strategy to use when our kids were very young and it got them to stop asking for things over and over and over again. Can I get an amen from the parents? Okay. Well, you know, there's lots of time that we ask God for something. And it seems like us that God doesn't answer our prayers. And then so we ask God for something and like so long goes by that all of a sudden we have that thing. All of a sudden we have a yes. We didn't see that coming. And I think that's exactly what's happened to the Apostle Paul here. Can we be honest here together, church family? Sometimes we ask for something. We, we want an answer. We prayed for something. We're like, God, just give me a yes or no. And God says, wait and see. That's almost like God's version of we'll put it on the list, okay? That's what's going on there. And we're like, no, Lord, I need an answer. Give me an answer right now. Yes or no. Open the door. Close the door. I just need an answer. And God's like, wait and see. You see, it's in those moments of waiting and watching and trusting that we need to trust in God's timing. That brings me to my first point this morning. Point number one, always trust in God's timing. If you don't know this, I need you to know this. God's timing is perfect. Okay? And those are the times when God says, well, I'm going to put that on the list. That's, that's when we need to be trusting God. And then, then we actually get what we prayed for. That's amazing. But we need to remember that His timing is always better than our timing. Okay? And, and there, there's reasons why God doesn't answer our prayers right away. And sometimes it's because... We need to grow. We ask God for something. We, we're like, give me a yes or no, God. God's like, wait and see. And the reason why he's making us wait is because we need to grow. And when you wait, it forces you to lean in and trust God and what he's trying to accomplish in your life. You know, it's, it's those seasons of waiting when we learn to, to wait and trust in God and, and to recognize that If these things are going to come to happen, it's going to become by by His power. And so it's during those seasons of waiting that a small seed of faith, it grows into a giant spiritual tree, if you will. And it's in those seasons where our faith becomes strong because we've, really, we trust in God's timing. And I think that's the case for the Apostle Paul right here. Because he's been waiting for two years to go to this place, and now he's finally able to go. Now think about it, if we were to go back in the book of Acts, we'd read about that vision that Paul had to go to Macedonia, that the, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, was redirecting his step to go somewhere else. And again, that happened over two years ago, and now he's finally able to go to this place and preach the gospel to, to the Ephesians, and they've never heard the name of Jesus before. They've never heard the gospel, and Paul's been wanting to go there. But think about this. In the in-between time... Paul's able to do all kinds of other things. Paul went to Athens and he preached at Mars Hill to the Athenians. He went to to Corinth and preached to the Corinthians. God has used him in such amazing ways. And now he's able to go to this place and preach to the Ephesians too. And I want to say this. We need to recognize this. That all happened because Paul waited on God. 
It's all happened because God, because Paul trusted in God's timing and God's direction. And there's so much that you and I can glean from this and learn from, from, from this. That even in the waiting, trust in God's timing. Because he's got such great things for us. I, I heard a preacher speak on this not too long ago. And, and he, he used this illustration. He said, you ever go through the drive through you pull up to the little speaker, and you order your food, and you pull up to the first window, and you hand over your money, and it's like, before you even get to the second window, there they are with your food. They, like, already have your food right away. You're like, that's a miracle. How, how do they know what I was going to order? Did they, did, they, did they know that I come here at the same time every day? How did I get it so quickly? The answer is they didn't know. Okay, the reason why the fast food industry has, has gotten rich is not because they know what you are going to order before you order it. The reason they, they, they can do what they do is because they've gotten really good at making food that the vast majority of people want. Okay? It's not that they knew what you were going to order. It's just that you ordered the same thing everybody else orders. And so try this. The next time you're at the drive-thru, pull up and order something crazy. Okay, order something wild. Order no onions and four times the number of pickles. Okay? And guess what's going to happen? You're going to pull up to that window. You're going to have to wait. In fact, you're probably going to have to go over into stall number one and wait for your food to be ready. And I'm saying that to, to take this into our prayer life. You know, pray for something big, but know that you're going to have to wait. And maybe that one thing, reason why that you're going to have to wait is that you're not ready for it. That God's going to grow you during this time. It's not that God can't bring that thing right away, because he can, but he wants you to wait for it. Well, the Apostle Paul, he's waiting on God. He's asked for something huge to go to this place, this Ephesus. And it's been two years he's been waiting. Well, so here in verse 1, he comes to that city. He's finally got there and he gets to Ephesus and he finds some disciples. Okay? When we hear the word disciples, we need to be very careful. Okay? Especially within the context of the Bible. Because as New Testament believers, we read that, and it's so easy to think that these guys are followers of Jesus. We're very quick to, 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 um, to connect disciples and Christian and think they mean the same thing. Okay, that's not necessarily so. It may be used to describe a person that is following another individual. Let me give you an example. If we were to back up to Luke's first letter called the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke part 2, book of Acts right now. Read in Luke chapter 5, verse 33. It says, And he said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Can you see three different groups of disciples all here in this one verse? There's the disciples of John the Baptist, there's the disciples of, of the Pharisees, and there's the disciples of Jesus. So I'm pointing this out to you to let you know that not all disciples are necessarily Christians. Let's keep reading. Go to verse 2. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And he said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was going to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord, Jesus. Here's my second point for this morning. Point number two, not everyone that thinks they're saved really are saved. That's a hard fact of life. 
That's a really hard pill to swallow. But that not everybody who thinks they're saved really are saved. Let me try to explain what's going on here, okay? This is one of the verses that those that hold to the doctrine of baptism or regeneration will point to. That means that there is a saving element to, to baptism. And I greatly disagree with people that, that believe that. In fact, I believe that's actually a false gospel. See, this is what they're saying. There's people that say, well, hey, those guys weren't saved until they were baptized, and then they, were, they had to say the name Jesus. They had, that had to happen in order to be saved. And it's like as if God's up in heaven going, oh, just please dunk them. Dunk them and say the right name, and then I can save them. That's ridiculous. Here's what I'll say to that. What about the thief on the cross? Luke 23, that guy was on the cross, never baptized, and yet Jesus, the highest sorcerer is, says that he's in heaven. So I'll leave that for your own study. But here, this is what I, I feel like needs to be said, okay? There are some preachers that when they're trying to explain salvation, they try to keep it as simple as possible. And there's times where we oversimplify it, Okay? And I think there may be times I'm guilty of doing this. I don't mean to oversimplify salvation. It's just some guys are really good at muddy in the waters. So I'm trying to keep it as clear as possible. But it really should be thought of as two-step process. Step number one is repentance. Okay? And that's really what the baptism of, of John, John the Baptist, was all about. John's baptism was a sign of repentance from sin only. And not a symbol of the new life in Christ that we know it now. So these disciples in Acts chapter 19, they knew this coming Messiah. And, but they didn't know the significance of, of the death that Jesus would die on the cross. They didn't know about him going and being buried in a rich man's tomb. They didn't know about him rising again on the third day. And do you remember in the previous chapter, that's the exact same situation that Apollos was in. And I think that's, that's why um, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to include it here in Acts chapter 19. You see, once you understand step one, the repentance, then you go on step two, which is faith. Because becoming a Christian involves turning from sin and turning to Christ in faith. Okay? And so that's why I'm calling it a two-step process. It's saying, I'm a sinner, but Jesus is my Savior. You know, and all the time I talk to people, and I think they have a better grasp on step two than they do step one. People all the time say, well, Jesus is my Savior. But at the same time, they don't understand the gravity and the the weightiness of their own personal sin. Okay? It's almost like a religion unto its own. So if someone says, Jesus saved me, well, then we must ask, well, saved you from what? Okay? And there's so many people that fall woefully short when it comes to this part. Okay? It's not that you're a pretty good person. You know, people say, well, at least I'm not Hitler, right? And then, and then that's what some people would say. And then you just add Jesus to your life and presto change you, you're saved. It doesn't work like that. You must come to a recognition that you're not only a sinner, but your own personal sin, it separates you from a holy God. And here's where the story gets worse. There's nothing you can do about it. Okay? There's no amount of being good or doing right things can ever make you right with the holy God. It's like a corpse. A corpse cannot begin to perform CPR on themselves to resuscitate their dead body. And that's like a person can't do anything to to save themselves. 
Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what Paul says to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2 of his letter. We are all dead men and women walking. And our sin, our personal sin, it makes us fit for hell. Had Jesus not come into the scene, broken to humanity, the final destination for every single one of us would be hell. And these disciples here in Acts chapter 19, they get step one, but they don't understand step two. And in my experience, that's a better place to be, okay? Have you ever tried to share the gospel with someone that is like really, really religious, but they don't have a heart of repentance? It's terrible. That's how I describe it. They have a lot of head knowledge about Jesus, but there's really no heart of transformation. Now compare that with sharing the gospel with someone that clearly knows they're a sinner. It's so much easier to share with them because they know they're a sinner. And because that, it's almost like they're closer to being saved. I know theologically that's not accurate, but it just makes sense in my, my little pea brain, if you will. And maybe it's because they didn't get the steps out of order. Let me try to explain it this way. Let's say we're going to put two teams of evangelists together. Okay, Two teams. We're going to break the, the church in the right side and the left side. Okay, my right side. This is team one. You ready? Here's your assignment. You're going to go to Sturgis during bike week. Okay? And some of you are like, huh, yeah, because you're going to see some stuff you probably don't want to see. And your goal, you're going to share the gospel with all the bikers that rolled into town, okay? And you're, you're going to see how, how many professions of faith you have. Now, step team two, this side of the church, you're probably thinking, whew, glad I'm not going there. Your assignment, you're going to Salt Lake City. And you're going to go to the, to the LDS temple, and you're going to share the gospel with all the people going in and out of there. And then at the end of the week, we're all going to come back here, and we're going to see who had a m- more fruitful week of evangelism. Who do you think is going to have more conversions to Christ? Who do you think is going to have more professions of faith? Now, just to be clear, all those people, both sides, they're equal in need of Jesus. And so does that sweet little old lady living down our own streets here in New Orleans. She needs Jesus, too. But I'm willing to bet that the the Sturgis team is going to come back and they're going to have more professions of faith. They're going to have a more fruitful week of evangelism. My question is why? Well, because that group doesn't have a lot of preconceived notions about Jesus. Also, they don't see anything in their life that would say, hey, I'm a righteous person. I'm, I'm a good guy, right? And in my experience, it's so much easier to share the gospel with, with that type of person. Now, again, everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. It's just kind of like some people are a little closer to accepting what Christ has done for them. Because they almost see the results of their own personal sin. So here Paul asks a very important question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul is trying to probe into their faith. And when they respond, they say, well, we're followers of John the Baptist. Remember old JTB? Okay, JTB was all about repentance, and the people had to repent before coming to the Savior. That's why John had a really hard time baptizing Jesus. If you know your Bible and the Gospels, Jesus goes to John and says, Hey, John, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, Whoa, no, no, it should be the other way around. John's like, You should be baptizing me. You see, because... John knew that his baptism was a, was a symbol of an individual's need to be made clean, but he also knew that Jesus was sinless. So if Jesus is sinless, and spoiler alert, he is, then why would, John, why would he be asking John to baptize him? 
And, and so the answer is because Jesus was pointing to the death that he was going to die. Jesus pointed to his death, his burial, and his resurrection at, at the, 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 his own baptism. Over and over and over again, John the, baptism, John the Baptist, excuse me, he preached about the need for repentance. So John, the baptism of John was pointing to Jesus. So you're thinking, well, where in the world did these guys in Acts 19, they, where did they miss it? Well, Paul is not saying that, that John's teaching was insignificant because it was very significant. Paul is not saying that the preaching and teaching of John didn't matter. He's just trying to help them that, that their, their understanding is just a little incomplete. Okay? John's baptism is a symbol of being made to be clean while Jesus' baptism is something altogether different. Because again, Jesus pointed to the death, burial, and resurrection that, that he would have. And, and when we are baptized today, when we put somebody in, in this tank, like we're going to do next week, right? We're saying something to get altogether different. That We're saying, I'm a sinner that needs to be saved. And this is what Jesus did for me. He died and he rose again. But it's also in that moment, we're saying something like this. We're telling Jesus, and by extension, the entire church, we're saying, I'm dying to myself. I'm going to live my life for Jesus. So it appears that these disciples, somewhere along the way, they went astray. And you're thinking, well, how in the world does this happen? And the answer is because they're following a man. Okay? They're content and satisfied with following John the Baptist. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying John's a bad guy. He, he's a great guy. That's what Jesus said. Jesus says he's the greatest guy. But in the end of ends, he's still just a man. And here's why I'm telling you this. Don't think we're not susceptible to the same thing. Okay, it still happens to this day. And I was kind of thinking about when's the time I, I, I've experienced this. Years and years ago, I, got, I had a friend that passed away in a tragic accident. And I, I went to his funeral, and I'm at a church I don't usually attend. And the preacher preached a message, and in his message he said, Well, we know so-and-so's in heaven because he's a member of this church. And my heart sank. Okay? It's all I can do to not get up and walk out of a service when someone preaches something that horrible. Whether a person went to this church, that church, or whatever church has absolutely no bearing whatsoever ever if they will spend eternity in heaven or spend eternity in hell. And I'm saying this because often when someone goes to a church, they become a follower or a disciple of that church or maybe that preacher and not necessarily a disciple of Jesus. I mean, that's really no different when some Christians say, well, I listen to so-and-so preacher on, on podcast all the time. Well, that makes you a disciple of that preacher and not necessarily a disciple of Jesus. I need you to know that following a man rather than Jesus leads you straight to hell. Now, I need to make another statement, okay, because the church you go to and the preacher you listen to is very important. And it's important because you want to go to a church where their beliefs line up with the Word of God, okay? What did God say in His Word? Well, you want a preacher that preaches that. You want to, you want to listen to preachers that are going to preach from the Bible and accurately interpret that. Don't listen to somebody who's preaching heresy, I'll let you know, there's a never-ending list of guys that fall on that list. And you're probably thinking, well, I would never blindly follow a man. Be careful, okay? It's so easy to do, and we do it all the time with an author or a preacher we love to listen to. And I'll be honest about myself. 
Sometimes I intentionally listen to guys and then play a little game I call Spot the Heresy. I'm not going to encourage you to do that, but it's kind of a fun game for me to play. And there are some really good preachers, I'm using air quotes there, and they just slip in some pretty damnable heresy into their teaching. And if we're not really, really careful, it's easy to accept what's coming out of their mouth as truth when it's not. Now, I need to be fair again, okay? There is a difference between misspeaking and intentionally leading somebody astray. I'm going to throw myself under the bus. (laughs) There's been times, you know, I'm up here, I'm doing spiritual battle, I'm preaching my heart out, I'm wanting God to save everybody in the room, and it's like the words came out of my mouth wrong. If you don't know this, I go back and I listen to some of my messages, and there's one, the most cringeworthy one I can think of. I was preaching on, on Jesus, and I meant to say Judas, but I said Jesus instead. Oh, that one hurts bad. That one makes you want to quit preaching altogether. But there's a difference between that and intentionally leading people astray. So this is a warning to all of us. We cannot follow a man. And I think the Apostle Paul was wise enough to recognize that's what's happening to these guys. These guys are disciples of John the Baptist and not the Savior that John was pointing people to. I think if John the Baptist knew this, he'd be turning over in his grave. I know that doesn't happen. That's a saying. But that's what would be going on. And these men need to hear the truth. They need to understand the death that Jesus would die. They need to understand that he was literally buried in a tomb and he literally came back from the grave. They need to hear the gospel. Okay? And so notice Paul's question to them. And this wasn't a question about baptism. It was a question about the Spirit. Paul asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul is, in a sense, he's trying to get their testimony. He wants to know um, why they came to believe what they believe and who they are that are placing their faith in. That's what he's wanting to hear. You know what? I do this all the time, too. If you've had a conversation with me, maybe I've asked you this question. The question I like to ask, I like to start out like this. If you died tonight, where would you go? I'm sure many of you in this room have heard me ask you that question. And so often people say, oh, heaven... Okay, good answer. Then my question is, well, if you did die tonight, and you did go to heaven, and God's standing at the, at the gates of heaven, it doesn't work this way, just pretend it does. You've heard me. Yeah. See, and God says, Jasmine, why should she let you in here? He says, Brian. He, he, he says, Jess. You know, he, he calls us by name. You see, it has to become personal. And so often, somebody will say, I've heard this a thousand times, people say, well, I've done the best I can. And... Wrong answer. If you're talk, don't do the buzzer sound. That's incredibly rude. Don't do that. But that's what Paul is doing with these guys, with John the Baptist, the disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus, Ephesus. You see, Paul wants to know if Jesus is their Savior. So my question then to people, they, they, they give their answer and say, well, to you personally, who is Jesus Christ? What they say, well, Jesus is a nice guy. Jesus is a great spiritual leader. Jesus is a great um, person for us to admire and for us to follow. Now, none of those answers are wrong. Those are all right answers, but they fall woefully short of who Jesus is, especially when it comes to our own salvation. My answer that I'm hoping to hear, I'm sitting there praying, give this answer that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. Brings me to point number three. Point number three, salvation must become personal, okay? 
He is my Lord. He is my Savior. The word Lord is kurios in the Greek. I like to define it like this. It means boss. Okay? Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the CEO of the universe. He's in charge. I'm not in charge. Jesus calls the shots. I don't get to call the shots. Jesus tells me what to do and not the other way around. So Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is my Savior. Well, if you have a Savior, then you have to ask the question, well, save from what? The correct answer is save from my sin. saves me from my sins. See, it's our personal sin. It's your sins. It's my sins that, that separates an individual from a holy God. And it's our sins that sends us to an eternity to hell. And so it's only someone that has accepted Jesus Christ's payment for their sins by faith that are saved. So that being said, there, there's lots of people, there's lots of members of a church. They, they become members of a, of a church based off their statement of faith. And they become members of that church. Maybe even are baptized in that church and yet they still aren't saved. If we were to hit rewind and go back in the book of Acts, we already read of a man that was in exactly this situation in Acts chapter 8 by the name of Simon the Magician. He professed Jesus as his Savior. He was, he was baptized in the church, but according to the words of the Apostle Peter, he wasn't genuine in his statement. Okay, And you're thinking, how in the world does this happen? The answer is because people have false conversions. Sometimes people say the right words, but they don't mean it in their hearts. And you're thinking, well, we can't allow that to happen in this church. Listen, if it happened at First Baptist Jerusalem, it's going to happen here too. All we can do is all we can do. And a lot of times, all we have is someone's statement of faith. And sometimes people aren't being genuine. But then Paul keeps getting down to the nitty-gritty. He goes even, even deeper than what I explained before. Paul asks them, tell me in your experience about the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the witness of the Holy Spirit is the indispensable proof whether you've been born again or not. Okay, It's the indwelling of the third member of the Trinity. God himself is proof if you've been born again. Read what Paul said about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. See a dividing line right there? With Christ, you have him. Without the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the the Spirit of life because of righteousness, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So let me take you through a series of questions. Here's the first one. It's really easy. Do you love Jesus? I think most of us are going, yeah, I I love Jesus. Well, then if you answered yes, next question, are you following Jesus? Probably trying to to cull the weeds a little bit, and some are going, yeah, yeah, I'm following Jesus. Well, if you answered yes, well, then how are you following Jesus? How about this? Do you do everything that everybody else does? Or are you deeply convicted by your personal sin? How about this? When you offend somebody, are you quick to ask for forgiveness? When there's something that's not right between you and another Christian, do you find it difficult to sleep? How about this? Do you have an overwhelming need? And when I say overwhelming, I mean overwhelming need to tell people about Jesus. Does your heart break when you know there's someone that doesn't know Christ? 
And by that, I mean you, you see somebody, they're neck deep in sin, sin that, that you do not identify and your heart breaks. Does your heart break for that person because they don't know Jesus? Is there evidence that the Spirit of God is, is working your life? Is there an, an evidence of conviction of sin? Is there evidence of Him correcting you? Is there evidence of Him guiding you? Is there evidence of Him speaking to you? Yes or no? Yes or no? Because if you're truly a follower of Jesus, then the Spirit of God dwells in you, and there should be some evidence that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is working you. If you don't know this, you should know this, but here's a fact. The Holy Spirit is not a lazy spirit. It's not like He takes residence up in your, in your life and then is just sitting back for the rest of your life. No! Now, to be perfectly clear... It's not the work that, that you do that saves anybody, but there should be evidence of God trying to build his kingdom through you. So these are some pretty good questions to ask yourself and evaluate yourself. So obviously, there are those who have genuinely given their for life for Christ, and there's evidence that the Spirit of God is, is working in your life. Here's my fourth point, point number four. Being baptized a second time is biblical. Verse 5 says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is what's happening to these guys. They, just, they heard an incomplete gospel. Somewhere, some long, they heard an incomplete gospel. They were baptizing, ba- baptized, representing the, ba- the repentance that they all needed to have, which is correct. It's just not the whole story. Well, Paul comes on the scene. He, he completes the story for them. He tells them about a great God coming to earth. And that God going to the cross and, and paying for, for their sins and then dying again or raising again from the grave. And upon hearing this message, you know what they said? They said, our baptism was an illegitimate baptism. And, and it's not that baptism saves anybody. It's just an outward profession of something that Christ has done for them. So they, they said, you know what? At our first baptism, we just got wet. That's all it was. You know, we've had people get baptized who were baptized as children, and they come to true faith in Christ as an adult, and they go, you know what? We need to get baptized again. And they, so these guys, they got baptized in the, in the right order. That's what's going on here in Acts chapter 19. So if you've never been baptized in the right order, in the service, we're going to have an altar call. Come down this aisle. Let's talk about this. You know, it's a beautiful thing we can celebrate. How about this? If you've never been baptized at all, but yet you profess Jesus, Savior, and Lord. Well, come down this aisle. Let's talk about this. Because baptism is the first step in obedience. Listen to what Jesus says about this in Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. So Jesus wants us to be baptized, to tell the whole world, this is what Jesus did for me. He died and rose again. It's almost like I can hear some grumbling from the crowd right now. There's somebody who's thinking, well, if that's true, what we spent the last you know, half hour plus talking about, if that's true, explain verse 6 and 7. Okay, let's do that. Verse 6 and 7 of Acts chapter 19. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So the verses we just read there, this is the last instance in the book of Acts of this miracle of, of uh, tongues. 
okay? If we hit rewind, we, we saw this in Acts chapter 2. There were believers believe, and they were given this gift of tongues. To be clear what that is, the gift of tongues is when a believer preaches in their own native language, and an unbeliever hears the gospel in a language that they don't speak, okay? It's more of a miracle of hearing that is a miracle of speech. And Gentile believers did the exact same thing in Acts chapter 10. It was, it was Cornelius and his whole household. They got saved and then they preached. And guess what? They're believers and they preached in their native language. And then there was unbelievers that heard the gospel in a language other than the one the preacher was preaching in, right? And what we have here in Acts chapter 19, it's the last time we see this occurring anywhere in the book of Acts. So the question is why? Well, Paul answered that question. Paul answered that question in his first letter to the church at Corinth. Read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. Paul writes, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy, preaching, that's what he's talking about there. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. So the miracle of when a believer preaches the gospel and an unbeliever hears it in a different language other than the one the believer is preaching in, it's a sign against the unbeliever. Preaching is for believers, where tongues, as a biblical definition of it, is referred to, is for unbelievers. It's telling the unbeliever, you're not right with God. And there's so many churches that practice what they call speaking in tongues, but has nothing to do with the, what we read in the pages of our Bibles, what the true miracle is. Here's the bottom line. This happens so that everybody would hear the gospel. Because when you hear the gospel, you're obligated to act on it. It's not like one day you're going to die, you're going to go, you're going to stand before God, and you're going to say, I didn't know. I guess you can say that, but good luck if you're going to try that, because that's an outright lie. We've all heard the gospel. So now the question is, what are you going to do with it? We are obligated to act once we've heard the gospel. Are you going to reject it? That's an option. Are you going to brush it off and think, well, maybe tomorrow? You're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible says it's appointed for man to die once, then judgment. I want everybody to be crystal clear. We have this life and this life only to settle this matter. With Jesus, heaven. Without Jesus, hell. But you choose. The best option is submit your life to Christ. Give him your life. After all, he came. He was tortured for over six hours after being scourged twice. And he did all this and died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could belong to him. If you don't belong to him, why don't you do that right now? Like I said, step one is recognizing you're a sinner. To recognize that the things I've done, it has separated me from a holy God. How many times have I lied? I don't know. Too many times to count. How many immoral thoughts have I had? I don't know. Too many times to count. That alone, we're separated from God and there's nothing we can do. That's why Jesus came. And he took on the wrath of God to pay for that. 
It's like God the Father treated his son like a sinner so that he could treat sinners like he does his son. The greatest deal there ever will be. Recognize your sinner and then call in the name of Jesus. By faith you can be saved. And you get God's grace. Not that we deserve it, because we don't. If you profess Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you are saved. The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I would invite you to pray and say, Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And the things I've done, my my thought life, my actions, it separates me from a holy God. But you came and you paid for that. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I pray this in the holy, precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.